This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday of Advent. So the Advent wreath comes down, it will stop tilting, and then next year we'll be fine, I hope. But the gears have really switched this Sunday because we're right near Christmas. And so today in the Gospel, we read Matthew's version of the Annunciation story and the infancy part of the infancy narrative in Matthew's Gospel. And the other two readings all affirm and have something to do with the church's view of the Incarnation. So it affords me the opportunity to preach on all three of them and to sort of exegete the text so that you have some idea of what, uh, how the church appropriated this and interpreted it. I've been reading a, a, a couple of very highfalutin books about a discipline known as hermeneutics, so I'm being influenced by this. I won't bore you with all that, but it's very interesting, all of this. So I want to talk a little bit about Mary when we get to the gospel, and a little bit about why we hear virgin in Matthew's account. I've talked, I talk about this uh, often, usually around this time of year, but it's good to, to reinforce it about the virginal conception, and uh, then to say some things about uh, where we're moving towards Christmas, the great affirmation in one sense of our humanity. So let me start with the reading from Isaiah. This is a very famous passage, and you who've hung around the church for a while have heard it. Behold, or look, uh, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. And uh, so I need to tell you about the situation on the ground, because Christian people have read that as predictive of Jesus' birth. And I don't think that that's irresponsible, given our understanding of who we believe Jesus to be. But Isaiah wasn't thinking about that when he spoke this prophecy. So we need to know a little bit about the situation on the ground first. I, uh, Isaiah was a prophet, and the king that he wanted to prophesy to was named Ahab. And as Dr. Reginald Fuller in his commentary on this passage said, Ahab wanted to have no truck with Isaiah's prophecy. That's exactly the way he puts it in his commentary. But Isaiah didn't care about that. He prophesied anyway. Uh, there was... Uh, a situation in, in the kingdom of Israel where uh, we're concerned now about the preservation of the Davidic monarchy. And so Isaiah tells Ahab that uh, a young woman will conceive in her womb and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. Well, Isaiah means Ahab's son, his wife, the queen's son, Hezekiah, and that's who's going to get born, and it will guarantee the continuity of the Davidic monarchy. Matthew, in his gospel, is concerned about connecting Jesus up with the line of David, so there's a rather uh, sort of uh, difficult genealogy in the beginning of Matthew's infancy narrative which seeks to make sure that Joseph is related to King David. So all of this is done, and there's a reason, and I'll get to that in a minute. 
in terms of what it is they tried to do. So let's just leave that alone. It's referring to a specific historical circumstance that Christian people looked back on their own sacred literature, those who knew the Hebrew Bible or who had heard it read to them, and they said, you know what? The birth of Jesus stands in direct continuity with God's purposes. And God's renewing, restorative return from exile, all of the things that we've talked about, is present now and in our view as Christian people then in the New Testament church represents now the unique focus of the divine presence. And we see God uh, fulfilling that in the person of Jesus and at his birth that we celebrate on Christmas. So this text is about bringing us up to uh, speed on that. So let's hold the thought in the Hebrew text. Look, a young woman, Alma in Hebrew, shall conceive. That's what it says in the Hebrew Bible. And Matthew now is going to quote from the the, uh, Old Testament in a few minutes when I talk about that. But first I want to say a word about Romans. So we're ta- here's why I'm doing this. In the Episcopal Church, if someone were to ask you, what is a th- how do you understand what is authoritative in your faith and belief? We would say we have three things that we believe is author- are authoritative. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. I come from a branch of Anglicanism, in fact, the majority of Anglicanism, which doesn't view uh, the Bible as some hermetically sealed unit that dropped out of the sky into our hands, right? It actually is part of the tradition. And as Henry Chadwick, the great historian of the early church, who died a couple of years ago, said, the thing that everybody needs to keep in mind always is that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. And that means we were here first. We wrote the Bible. So in that sense, we are free now to understand this book uh, in terms of the tradition of interpretation that has been held over time. And this is where this reflection gets, you know, controversial because people have different views about how we have interpreted various texts over time. But there is a broad sweep of biblical interpretation which supports the view that uh, it is the tradition with a capital T that we understand or use to interpret the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So what we're going to be talking about in this sermon are the traditions that are behind the virginal conception, traditions behind our understanding of the humanity and divinity of Jesus, that don't flow from absolute statements in the biblical text, but from our reflection on and conversation about what is in the biblical text. This may be complicated, but there it is. You know, One of the things I liked about being an Episcopalian when I became one was you didn't have to park your brains in the narthex when you came in, <laughs> but it seemed a little bit difficult because the answers weren't always as sure. And sometimes uh, we get accused of being awfully wishy-washy on a great many things. And there are lots of people who would prefer to have their faith a little bit more precisely defined for them because it's easier to proceed. But the difficulty is, is that you and I, as we live our lives and 
perhaps hold to some deeply held uh, beliefs about uh, God and God in our life and so forth, we receive challenges and opportunities, don't we, to think, rethink this stuff. It doesn't always work that way. Years ago, there was a television show called Dr. Kildare with J Richard Chamberlain, and he was a young doctor, and he was on a, at a Boy Scout camp or some sort of a camp for kids as a young intern and there was a big crisis and somebody got into an accident and they couldn't breathe and they were in the tent and he was there in the tent with an older doctor and they had to give this kid a tracheotomy. You know, they had to cut a hole here so he could breathe. And so the doctor said, you, you do this. And so he took the scalpel and he cut there and he said, uh, that vein isn't supposed to be there. <laughs> and the doctor said, on him, it is. Okay? So some people's appendix is here and not at McBurney's point, right? So it's not the same. So there's no, there's no use talking about fixed stuff in absolute terms. And the tradition with a capital T gives us just that, a tradition of interpretation that we need to understand, and it might be helpful as we come with our own challenges and opportunities. So that's just a little digression, but a commercial message for using your brains and why that's an important thing to, to do. So Paul, today in Romans, is writing the introduction to his epistle to the Romans, and here's the situation on the ground here. Paul is writing a letter to the Roman Christians, and he didn't found this congregation. So the purpose of the letter to the Romans is for him to introduce himself and to give them his version of the gospel and hope that those Christians who in some way missionized the Romans and created the Roman church uh, received a version of the gospel that is in somewhat in sync with him. Or he may feel like he needs to do some correcting or some reinforcing or whatever it is. But in this case, he's introducing himself and beginning to talk about his version of the gospel. And what we have in today's reading, if you digest it and sort of switch it around to make it a little bit more understandable, there's an early creedal statement in here that Paul is assuming the Roman Christians would have heard. Descended from David, according to the flesh, designated Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness. And so he speaks to them about this as if he knows or believes that they have received that understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And that in some way this becomes now a starting point. So he is repeating the tradition about David's descent from King David. And he's at pains to do this because he wants to root Jesus both in humanity and he wants to speak in some way about his divinity and to understand what that might mean. So we have the primitive beginning of what we call in seminary, the two natures theory, right? Jesus is a fully human and fully divine and what in the world do we mean by that? And do we think about that in magical terms or is it actually a more vigorous idea that connects to our own divine center as well as the deep depth of our own humanity? So Paul sets us up for this and in Christmas we're going to now uh, be reflecting on that in the biblical text that we'll read. So 
Matthew. There are two infancy narratives in the New Testament, Luke and Matthew. Mark does not have an infancy narrative. There is very little mention of the virginity of Mary except in these accounts. Paul does speak about it, but it is not just talked about endlessly. So let me clear up some things before in terms of terminology because people forget this too. Today, we're talking about something in theology which is called the virginal conception. Right? That Mary conceived Jesus without any human agency but by the action of the Holy Spirit. When I taught religion at St. Michael's School in the fourth grade, and some kid would always, yeah, but, uh, but, but, but how did she get pregnant? <laughs> so you say, well, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and they go, oh. <laughs> no, that was easy. <laughs> so, so here's the deal. Uh, Matthew is a former rabbi. He's a Jewish Christian. He's interested in connecting Jesus with King David because the Messiah that he had yearned for and that his people had yearned for, many of them, was to be a kingly Messiah. And there are other people who yearn because of their Greek influence and understanding for a more spiritual or priestly Messiah. Right? And so people, as these two traditions come together, Hellenism and the Hebrew outlook, we're going to have some sort of a synthesis of these two views about Jesus' uh, humanity and his, his kingly messiahship and also his priestly messiahship, the spiritual side of what it is that we're talking about in his redemptive work. In the Hebrew Bible, when we read from Isaiah, it says, Look, a young woman is with child and she'll bear a son and she'll name him Emmanuel. A young woman in Hebrew, Alma. Alma means, in Hebrew, a young woman of marriageable age, not a virgin. When we have the diaspora, Alexander the Great comes, and we have Jews now outside of Jerusalem and scattered all over the ancient Near East, they forget how to speak and read Hebrew, and so a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible becomes, gets translated, called the Septuagint, in Greek. And this section in the Greek uh, Old Testament says, Look, a virgin shall conceive. So you, you may have noticed the difference. We have young woman in the reading from the Old Testament, and in the Gospel today it says virgin, Parthenos. So Matthew and Luke use Parthenos. They don't use Alma. It's particularly startling in my view that Matthew would do that because he was a Hebrew speaker and reader. So he didn't use the Hebrew text. He used the Greek text on purpose. Why? Because for Luke and for Matthew, they were transmitting a tradition with a capital T that predates the writing of the Gospels that Mary conceived Jesus without any human agency. And they believed that it was necessary to preserve that tradition for some reason. 
I am not making a commercial message to you for accepting the virginal conception other than to say some pains were taken to preserve it, right? So that's something that we, we just need to uh, put out there at the group level. The immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. It is the doctrine that holds that Mary was conceived in her mother's room without original sin. So in medieval theological terms, you would say she was born with post-baptismal grace. All right? That is a, a controversial doctrine. It is one of the things that separates Anglicans and Roman Catholics uh, in terms of their understanding of the role of Mary. You know, we're pretty much in sync. In fact, in 2007, 2005, there was a joint statement issued by Anglicans and Roman Catholics on Mary that pretty much agreed about everything, except that we demurred about two things, uh, the Immaculate Conception and the Feast of the Assumption, which we believe was, uh, is a little thin on the ground in terms of justifying it biblically although we are willing to continue to have the conversation. But Anglicans, you know, are kind of funny because we have the visitation, it's a feast day in our prayer book, we have the Annunciation, which is a feast day in our prayer book, and we have on August the 15th something we call the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The collect, the opening prayer that we read for that liturgy is the collect for the Assumption. <laughs> But it's never spoken in that way, right? But there, that's what it is. So it's sort of like, we'll just prefer not to say anything about, about that. But the Feast of the Assumption in the Roman Catholic Church is August the 15th. So those are things that we have that you just need to put on ice. You never know when you'll be able to talk about that. So. What do we get from all this? We get from all this that the church in its tradition with a capital P is it pains to present or to lay out to people something to do with the nature of the humanity of Jesus and his divinity. And they are not two separate natures where we have Jesus as a human here and Jesus as God here and divine. We have something that is put together. So we think and reflect about, if you're going to speak in the orthodox fashion, about the divinity within the humanity. And so if we think about Jesus, as I tell you a lot, as the template, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that what Jesus, through his teaching and his mighty works, has done for those who follow him is to show them how to be the most excellent human beings they can be? And that the Christmas season, as we move to it, is the great yes to our humanity and the affirmation that all of us have some species of a divine center, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And in that sense, we follow the Savior. We aren't him, but we have that divine spark that comes to us. You know, in the Chalcedonian definition, the humanity and divinity of Jesus the, 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 in the Council of Chalcedon, this is in the prayer book, 
Uh, so if you're ever in church, the liturgy is a little boring or external to you. Just look up the uh, Chalcedonian definition of the humanity and divinity of Jesus. They, w- the way they write about this is that Jesus' humanity and divinity are like the DNA helix in him. They are inseparable. So when you look at him, you're trying, you're trying to figure out, you know. And so those who have an overweening sense of his divinity probably would be amazed if they went back to first century Palestine and asked him if he knew anything about a space capsule. Because he would say, I don't even know what you're talking about, or a cell phone, right? And they're all, well, he's God. So he must be able to know all that stuff. That's not what we mean. Even some of the the best conservative biblical scholars like N.T. Wright would say, you are always talking about God in a way that they didn't understand or talk about then, about what God, who God was. So when they speak about Jesus and his divinity, we have to keep that worldview in mind. This week, give thanks as you move towards Christmas for the incarnation, for the possibility that you can understand this as uh, the means by which you appropriate the fullness of your own humanity. You'll hear me, I always say every Christmas I give you the four affirmations. And one of them is, of course, the goodness of our humanity. And this reading today in the uh, infancy narrative and these other things begin to see and show us that uh, this unity of humanity and divinity is something that all of us share in. Amen.